0: Hello! It's Anthony here from The Wrong Station. Happy Halloween, and hope you're all doing well. Just wanted to give everyone a little bit of a production update. Here at The Wrong Station, it is our strong preference to work with local actors recording face-to-face. But as quarantine has continued on, that has been difficult to safely coordinate. We're looking into other options, and this is not going to affect our release schedule, but it has involved some rearranging of episodes. So for the time being, you may continue to hear... Mostly me. And I know that some of you won't mind that, but for us it's not the ideal situation, so we just wanted to address it. Other than that, things are proceeding normally, and we hope you enjoy this, um, very special episode. Ta-ta.
1: Good an almond, minds this inclinin' ire. It is I, the Halloween Kaiser, better known to some as the Kaiser of Halloween. But you knew that. You knew it was a Zeus pink slop inside your sugary little heads. Tonight we will be reading from the great tome of all Hallow's Eve snippets, most horrid and most foul, penned by radical Fouts in the year 1578, a collection of stories in which bad things happen to bad little children. And good ones, too. Our first story is a scrumptious little number that goes by the title A Quiet All Saints' Eve Dinner. So set your ovens to 190 degrees Celsius, and by the time this evening is through, you should be ready to pop your Kaiser cake right in. You are making Kaiser cake, aren't you?
0: In any case, our story. Young Norman Matheson, Pope. The sizable portion of boiled fish that sat on his plate. He prodded at it with his fork, turning it around and flipping it over, looking for one piece, one bite that looked appetizing. And when he had exhausted his search, he decided that he'd start with the greens and come back to the fish when it was necessary. Norman was not happy this evening, and... Quite sadly for a boy his age, he rarely was, though in this case to speak to this particular evening it was because just past the archway that divided the dining room and the first floor hallway, through the foyer and then the front door, and out into the world, it was Halloween night. But inside the Matheson household, and most certainly at the Matheson's dining room table, it was All Saints' Eve. You see, the Mathesons didn't care much for Halloween. They didn't care much for most things that a twelve-year-old boy might find enjoyable. Video games, cable television, even make-believe play out in the street. They had been mildly accepting of organized baseball for a time, but that didn't last very long. Mr. Matheson found the other children to be churlish, a bad influence. Mrs. Matheson didn't like how Norman would come home with dirt on his pants. No, no, no. Norman's thus far short life was one of study, prayer, and solemn reflection. But that doesn't mean he didn't dream of other things. He longed for a time when he could wake up on a Saturday morning and watch all the cartoons that his classmates talked about. Or visit a friend's house and pretend to be a powerful wizard or a daring thief. Or even once, just once, to go out on Halloween night. You've hardly touched your fish, boy. Norman snapped to attention, stuffing his daydreams into a shameful box in the corner of his mind. The imposing Mr. Matheson loomed over the table from his seat at its other end. A picture of puritanical patriarchy. Off in your idle fantasies again. His question, hardly even a question, made Norman's skin sear with embarrassment. "'If you're not hungry, I can put it away for later,' interjected Mrs. Matheson. Hers was a method more cool and tempered on the surface, with mercurial threat bubbling beneath. "'The boy is plenty hungry, Elizabeth.' just not for the meal so meticulously prepared by you, and put on this table by the grace of God. No, our son would rather be outside with the pagans, gorging himself with sweets. Norman had been dreading this. If it hadn't been the fish, it would have been something else. Each year on this night, his parents would find some reason to castigate him for his desires. I see, said Mrs. Matheson. "'placing her napkin down and turning aside with a calculated pout. "'Then maybe I shouldn't have made anything for such a spoiled little wretch. "'Now look what you've done.' "'Mr. Matheson slammed the table with a closed fist.
1: "'You'll be the death of your mother, a vile shame upon our
0: house.' "'Mr. Matheson rose from his seat and began to slowly stalk over to Norman "'until he stood over the child. Mm -hmm, "'But maybe that's what you want.' to be rid of us, have Satan pluck us from the earth and leave you to the life of hedonism you so desperately want, leave you to your Halloween. Norman considered these words for a moment as the heat made him sweat, heat from his shame, sadness, and anger, and from his father's hot breath. And considering the alternative as well, A thought came to his mind almost, involuntarily. Yes, I do want that. (laughs) In an instant, glass shattered and a howling wind entered the house as the dining room window was blasted open from the outside. All three of the Mathesons turned with surprise, and then horror as the cause of this destruction wasted no time making itself known. Two creatures entered the home, stepping over the window frame with long, lithe, hairy limbs. They were dark of fur, winged, horned, clawed, and razor-fanged, and with gleeful little (laughs) kick-kick-kick-kick-kickers, they stepped forward and snatched the screaming Mr. and Mrs. Matheson before flying off with him, out of the window, into the night sky, and off to places unknown. And now, altogether quite quickly and unexpectedly, Norman was alone. Alone for one moment, before he heard a rustling from the bushes outside that same window, and one more of those dark imps poked its head in from outside. Still lots of good candy out there. Best hurry before it's gone. (laughs) And with that, it too flew off.
1: And perhaps
0: Norman should have asked some questions. And perhaps he should have felt a pang of guilt. But that could always come later. For now, in this moment, on this night. He was happy.
1: Was simply delightful though she had written more about this spartan dinner in more detail oh it makes me sink back to eating fish heads with my friend and confidant Bernicus down by the riverbank but there is no time for reminiscing for we must hasten on to our next story this one is a real sizzler titled halloween ain't the same and it goes as follows
0: halloween <laughs> Halloween is a crock of shit holiday, has been ever since the Tallahassee Treaty of the Second Great North American Reconjunction. Same as all the other bullshit holidays. Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, New Yugoslavian Thanksgiving. But actually, you know what? Halloween might be the worst. Halloween, at its roots, at its core, was anarchical, radical... Hey, don't fucking roll your eyes at me. You brought this shit up, now I'm going to rant about it. Fucking themster North, a model citizen over here, too preoccupied with patriotism to learn about history. Anyway, fuck. Anarchy. All Hallows' Eve started off back in the old, old days as a pagan harvest celebration, before the Christians co-opted it and made it a day about dead, dusty old saints, before the fighters out there re-co-opted it back to being about Pagans and Satanism and bad fucking witches and shit, which is great, but then the capitalists re reco opted and... Fuck! I don't need to tell you what the fash caps have done with this nation-state. Look, look at us, just, 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 look at us. First day off I've had in who knows how long, excavating soluble plastics from the undercities of the first Reconjunction Empire. First day you've had off from shucking fucking corn. But oh yeah, let's thank our benevolent overlords for the mandated and stringently enforced holiday. Hey, Halloween Halloween used to be opt-in. You put up the decorations. You went out and bought the candy to give away. You did whatever little rituals you wanted to do. Now it's, now it's, the, now it's the fucking same for everyone. We wake up. We all turn on the public network and watch Jason X, and I'll write about this another time, but I refuse to believe the lie that there were not nine other movies that came before it. Anyway, we all watch the movie. State police come to your house and supply you with the state-sanctioned sugar treats you will give out that night, the value of which is deducted from your monthly allowance, of course... Then, one of you takes your shit-ass kids out from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. exactly, and the other one of you stays home to give out candy to other people's shit-ass kids. And and, and, before you say it, yes, the kids are all wearing different costumes, but that's because the government assigns your kids a costume. They tell you what costume they're gonna wear. And it's all tropey shit from the capitalist age of Market Store Halloween with no regard for modern context, like... I get that black cats used to be a big thing associated with the season, but domestic cats have been extinct for 70 years. Do you think the kids wearing those costumes even know what the fuck they're supposed to be? Jesus Christ makes me sick. (sighs) But this year... (laughs) This year, I've got plans to shake things up a bit. I was digging a little deeper into these old Halloween stories and I came across this old wives' tale that I
1: found pretty
0: interesting. There used to be this rumor that some people would unwrap candies and chocolates and put razor blades and needles in them before wrapping them back up and giving them to unsuspecting kids. Made people worried. Made them uneasy. Now, that's not exactly what I want to do. That's a little barbaric. No. I was thinking... Microscale, timer-set thermal charges. Give it... Two days. There's a chance that some might go off before they get eaten or after they're ejected, but it will definitely melt a few children from the inside out. Maybe also burn some bystanders in the process. That causes some panic... I think. Gets people asking questions, gets them mad at the government. That's what we need. You get me? To bring a little anarchy back to Halloween.
1: Ach, mein Gott, kinda of kleine Katzen. Halloween ain't the same. You're right, how prescient you were. In any case, moving on to one I'm very excited about. It's called The Best Guy in Town. A story about the best guy
0: in town. When I was a kid, the best guy in town was M. Bombardier McDonough. He was one of those guys who was always fit and healthy and full of pep, even in his old age. He had nicknames for all the kids in town, and when he saw you coming down the street, he'd shout something like, Hey, big time, how's it going? And then he'd give you a serious grown-up handshake and say, M. Bombardier McDonough, it's a pleasure to meet you. Even though you'd met him a hundred times before. And then he'd say something cheeky like, Hey, who's your pretty sister? And then your mama would blush and say something like, Oh, M. Bombardier, I don't look that young. And he'd say something like, Hey, what do I know? My age, I can't even see the wrinkles anymore. And everyone would laugh and he'd tossle your hair and say, Shoot him dead, big time. And then swagger on down to wherever he was going. M. Bombardier McDonough, M for Michael because his mother was Catholic, and Bombardier after Bombardier Billy Wells, the world heavyweight champion boxer in the 19-teens. But he'd always gone by M. Bombardier because, as he put it, jeez, there was no fair shake for an Irish guy back when I was growing up, and because, heck, I always thought an American should have an initial in his name. As kids, we'd loved him. He'd been a U.S. Marine once, and swaggered around our small Ontario town in a green bomber jacket with aviators and a silver crew cut. When we were learning about World War II in school, our teacher, charmed, no doubt, on our way to the grocery store, brought him in to talk about it. We spent the whole afternoon holding us wrapped with stories about Midway and Guadalcanal, about heroics in the high sea and desperate actions in the jungle. It was like listening to a comic book, all bright colors and clear morals and sound effects like whap and pow. But the best thing about Bombardier McDonough, at least for a young kid, was that on Halloween, he was the guy who handed out full-size chocolate bars. And not just full-sized, but two for every kid. He'd made a fortune in business after the war, and he always said, "'Hey, what's the point of having cash if you can't give out good Halloween candy? What am I gonna do? Eat it all myself?' Then he'd mime how big his belly would get if he did that and say, I want to be the Halloween guy, not Santa Claus! Ho ho ho! You'd get home and sort out all the candy and your mom would say, Full-size bars, who gave you these? And you'd say, M. Bombadier McDonough. And she'd sigh and get a faraway look and say, "Ah, That M. Bombadier McDonough must have been some man back in his day. Which was fine for me, because I had a single mom but for my friends who had dads, it was a little awkward. I remember one Halloween very clearly. We'd gone down the street trick-or-treating, and when we got to M. Bombardier's house, he was waiting with the usual goods. But before we could go, he narrowed his eyes at us and said, "'Say, you kids are getting awful big. Uh, "'I reckon you're probably old enough now. "'You want to see something cool?' We shrugged and followed him inside, And from the top of a bookcase he pulled down a japanese officer sword in a dull gray sheath whoa we all said got it off a guy who tried to pot me he said he drew it shimmering into the bright electric light came at me out of the dark yelling and howling like a demon with ten or twelve of his other buddies he winked at us well what they didn't know is that your old pal m bombardier was named the greatest boxer of all time Pam, kaplow, laid them all out flat, quick as you could talk about it. And I said to him, I said, Let that be a lesson to you, Kamikaze, never tussle with an American. And then, remembering his audience, he added, Or Canadian. Well, we all love that story. Except for Jake Fujiwara from down the block, who seemed to have conflicted feelings. You know, it's still sharp said M. Bombardier. You kids want to use it to cut pumpkins in half out back? <sighs> it was the best Halloween ever. When we were leaving that night, he called out from the porch. Come back in a few years, and I'll show you kids the real cool stuff we brought back from the war. Hmm. <sighs> but the next few years turned out to be not so kind to M. Bombardier McDonough, He'd always looked at least ten years younger than he was, but those years were getting long, and they finally started catching up with him. At first, he'd just get your nickname wrong, but... gradually. Well, you've probably known some folks with cognitive decline, and you get the idea. Eventually, he said something truly unforgivable to Jake Fujiwara's mom, and after that, well, he stopped being quite such a fixture in the community. Look, kids... My mom said to us a few falls later, I'm sorry to say it, but this Halloween, I don't think you should go to M. Bombardier McDonough's house. He's getting a little confused, you know, and Halloween, well, it might just be not good for him, you know? And we'd seen the same thing happen to our grandma, so we nodded our heads and said okay. Now, that was the year I turned 13, so I wasn't really out trick-or-treating anyway. While my sister was going from door to door, me and Jake and the others were out smoking cigarettes on the school roof and then throwing eggs at the rich houses in town. My curfew was technically 10, but it was already 10.30 by the time I arrived at the bottom of the street where I lived. Like I mentioned, it was a quiet town. By 10.30, the streets were empty, and I was the only one out. And so I nearly jumped out of my skin when a voice called out to me out of the darkness in a stage whisper. Hey. Hey, big time. I turned around, and there, smoking a cigar on his front porch, all lit up silver in the moonlight, was M. Bombardier McDonough. He beckoned me, and I was a little hesitant, but he'd remembered my nickname and seemed lucid enough. Besides, I was big for my age, and M. Bombardier wasn't the physical presence he'd been two years earlier. Oh, big time. Remember a few years ago when I showed you guys that sword? Well, sure. He winked at me, and it reminded me of the old M. Bombardier I'd grown up knowing. It was a good feeling. Comforting. You want to see what else we brought back? I followed him into his house, and the place, which had once been neat and tidy as a Marine Sergeant's haircut, had become cluttered and musty. A sour, powdery smell of senility had oozed into the carpet and bookshelves. Here we are, said M. Bombardier. He'd opened a wooden cabinet to reveal a small safe, the kind with a key, not a combination lock. The key, along with his old dog tags, were hanging from a ball chain around his neck. Ugh, heck. He hissed from the pain in arthritic knuckles as his blue-veined fingers fumbled a few moments with the lock. At last, there was a click, and the safe door swung open, revealing darkness within. He hummed softly to himself as he reached inside. Ever the showman, he paused before withdrawing his hands, to wink at me. His eyes were very bright, blue as the South Pacific sky, but dazed with distant cyrus clouds of age. When he spoke, I wasn't sure if he didn't know what was going on, or if it was the first time in years that he did. Yeah, big time. Get a load of this. Brought back some pretty cool stuff, huh?" What he passed into my hands was dry and surprisingly light, carried a faint smell, faint enough that you might almost miss it. Gray and mottled, it was a necklace of human ears. I passed the artifact back into his frail hands and walked out into the night. "'very singularly unpleasant man. Oh, "'And yet,
1: still so beguiling in his own ways, that M-Bombardier. "'But let us not get off track, "'for so we must move on to our next story.
0: Home "'Homemade.'" "'Ugh, Mommy, that's gross,' said Therese, "'pointing to the fake blood in the Polaroid. "'Yeah, honey, your mom's costumes were, uh, "'pretty wild,' laughed Eric. "'Amaranth.' Amy, to her friends, laughed right back. It was Halloween, and the three of them were flipping through one of the old photo albums Amy's mother had bequeathed to her in her will. While the rest of the albums were labeled as weddings or birthdays, this one had been left blank. But it was obvious when these pictures had been taken. It was filled with Polaroids, all red eyes and ugly lighting, each of which depicted a young Amy wearing a homemade Halloween costume. Amy didn't remember many of the costumes. Children rarely do. But looking at them brought back the sweet smell of clove cigarettes. Her mother would smoke them by the handful while she carefully attached each part of the costume. Her heels would click and clack against the hardwood floor as she circled the chair where Amy sat, trying not to fidget. Old homemade costumes always look freaky, said Amy. We didn't have cheap molded plastic or polyester when I was your age. Grandma had to improvise. "'But what are you dressed as?' asked Therese. Amy took a closer look. In this photo, she looked to be about six. She was wearing an old burlap sack with holes cut for eyes. She had a bizarre wicker charm around her neck, and her hands were covered in fake blood. "'You know, honey, I... don't know,' said Amy. Grandma just probably threw it together— she was so busy with work, PTA, she even did neighborhood watch. Neighborhood watch, said Eric. Yeah, she pulled the night shift every week for years. I had a lot of babysitters growing up. Eric furrowed his brow for a moment. Did she ever mention that to me? Before she could answer, Therese cut him off with a shriek of laughter. Look at this one, Mommy. Amy followed Therese's fingers to another photograph. In this one, Amy seemed to be about 7, wearing what looked like a spider costume albeit one with far too many legs. The legs appeared to be made from woven wicker, and each one ended in a sharp point. Her actual hands held a lit candle. Emmy's mother was in the background, her hands busy with something just out of frame. A clove cigarette clenched between her teeth. Emmy racked her brain, but couldn't remember any of this. Why was she the only one in these photos? What about the friends she trick-or-treated with? She flipped ahead. Therese clutched at her mother, no longer laughing. Amy, eight years old, her arms painted with cryptic designs drawn in black ink. She felt queasy looking at them. In this photo, she wore a glazed expression, her palms outstretched toward the camera. From the center of each, gazed a detailed, void-black eye. Amy's mother was standing in the background next to a small pile of dead birds. Emmy didn't realize that Teresa had started crying, or notice when she ran upstairs and slammed the door, or when Eric chased after her, briefly shooting a confused look over at Emmy. Emmy sat alone on the couch, just staring at the final photograph in the album. Emmy stood in the foreground, wearing a blood-stained nightgown, holding the skinned carcass of some unidentifiable creature. Her face was obscured by a lamb's skull, which she wore as a mask. She was staring at the camera, seemingly totally unaware of her surroundings. Behind her, Emmy's mother lay on the ground in the middle of a large circle of runes. She was completely nude, as were the five other people standing around the circle, but none of these disturbing images are what drew Amy's eye. She was too focused on something in the background. The camera flash had cast a long shadow behind young Amy, but half-hidden in the shadows, she could just make out a figure. Hunched, skeletal, and with arms that ended in filthy claws. It was ignoring everything in the photo... Except her mother, a single, putrid hand was reaching from the darkness and into the light, outstretched towards her mother in a gesture of offering. Offering? Offering what? The hand was empty. Or perhaps it was a gesture of taking. Emmy inhaled sharply, trying to calm herself. As she did her nose suddenly filled with the familiar scent of clove cigarettes. The smell grew stronger as she heard the click clacking of heels on the porch steps. The doorbell rang. Well, 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 Mota has got some
1: explaining to do, hasn't she? For our last stories this evening, which I must remind you, like all the others, was written in 1578 by Rydecus Fouch, we present you with a truly terrifying, horrifying spectacle. A man's home is his castle. Halloween,
0: 1987. And Johnny, Roop, and Taz were all out smashing pumpkins with a baseball bat. There was one house left on the block, and Roop was wiping pumpkin goop off the bat with a rag. Mrs. McCready always carved her jack-o'-lantern in the middle of October, so by Halloween night it was already collapsing and mottled. "'Gross,' said Roop. "'One more house and then we head home?' "'Sure,' said Johnny. "'Whose place is that down at the end?' "'I don't know,' said Taz. "'It just moved in.' There was a light flickering under the awning of that darkened porch, set back from the street out at the end of the block, under the trees." "'Well, looks like they got a pumpkin for us anyways,' said Roop. "'Creepy place, though. Who'd move in there?' "'I know who,' said Johnny, with a smile. "'A family who's about to get their pumpkin smashed.' "'Nigh invisible in their dark clothes, "'they crept down the front walk "'and creaked up the half-rotten steps of the last house. "'Ooh, the pumpkin was a real classic. "'Big and meaty, bright orange,' with triangular eyes and a broad, toothy smile. Oh, baby, said Johnny, winding up with the baseball bat. This is going to be a good one. Oh, is it? Johnny froze at the sound of a heavy metallic click. The front screen door of the house swung open, and moonlight glimmered from the silvery double bore of a sawn-off shotgun. Johnny dropped the baseball bat and backed away with his hands up, Whoa, I'm sorry, man, I didn't mean- You kids picked the wrong house to fuck around with. Please, really, we were just trying to- Punks with your leather jackets and your cigarettes, trying to terrify ordinary homeowners. Well, you can only push a man so far. Please, said Tez, as he and Roop backed down the creaking front steps. Please, sir, the jackets, they're only denim. He fell silent as the man with the shotgun stepped into the moonlight illuminating the porch. He was built like a pickup truck, dressed in plaid and had the sleeves rolled up over hairy forearms. And his head... Well, his head was a pumpkin. A man's home is his castle, said the man. And then, two deafening gunshots opened up the night. Somebody screamed and footsteps thudded on the packed dirt of the front walk. A moment later, A third gunshot went off, and after that, all was silent on Halloween night. The next morning, a pair of cop cars were drawn up in front of the porch at the end of the road. The officer was taking notes on a small, spiral-ringed pad with a blunt golf pencil. "'Well,' he said, finishing his notes and tucking the pad into his front chest pocket, "'It all sounds pretty cut and dried to me, Mr. McPumpkinhead.' You had no choice but to protect your property. After all, man's home is his castle. The two men shook hands, and the officer climbed into the front seat of his cruiser, adjusting the mirror so he could look at himself. A pair of black triangular eyes stared back. Satisfied with his appearance, the officer grunted, adjusted the mirror again, and settled a peaked cap on top of his big, pumpkiny head. Moments later, his cruiser was peeling out of the driveway. It was just another day on the thin orange line. Burr,
1: that's for I'm chilling, yarn. Denon jackets, how terrifying. Still, it just goes to show you, mine schrecklich brats, crime doesn't pay. And so, with another Halloween season passing by, we must take our spooky thread and use it to sew Radicus's tome back up for another year. I don't like it any better than you do. The cover's full of nerves, and the damned thing screams like the dickens every time I stick it with my Halloween needle. Anyway, that's all for now. I have been the Halloween Kaiser, better known to some as Kaiser Halloween Zare, and this has been Snip Snip's most horrid fowl. Now go out there and enjoy your Halloween! Go have sex with a ghost or a Frankenstein or something. Good night! This week's episode, Snips Most Horrid, Snips Most Foul, was written by Horatius Fouch in the year 1578 and was performed by none other than myself, the Halloween Kaiser. What did you expect something else? The Round Station is made possible with the generous support of its listeners on Patreon. Thank you to Anko Kocek, Jennifer Emmett, Victoria, Nate, Daniel Hudner, and Sue Steele for helping them keep the lights... well... oof. You can also support them by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to The False Station. The Wrong Station is produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Alain Zetron and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and email them at thewrongstation@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And until next time... Danke fürs die